It may be hard to believe, but there have been several junctures in Steven Spielberg's blisteringly successful career when he was considered a liability. In the early 1970s, after his first directorial assignment for television, he was so rattled he opted instead to write screenplays. And it was only after he failed to sell any that he decided to give directing another go. Twenty years later, he experienced back-to-back disappointments with Always in Hook, and studio executives were wondering whether the wunderkind who desperately wanted to grow up was all washed up. Five years ago, when he was preparing the biopic Lincoln, he was all but resigned to making it for television. But I'm not focusing on those crises. The crisis I'm focusing on came after the mammoth successes of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. By 1979, Spielberg was bracketed with several other directors who had exploded onto the Hollywood scene, each reimagining and repackaging old genres in electrifying ways. Francis Ford Coppola had done it with The Godfather, Peter Bogdanovich with What's Up Doc, William Friedkin with The Exorcist, and Martin Scorsese had confounded everyone by turning Taxi Driver into a Pandora-winning commercial hit. But one by one by one by one, Each of them had crashed out in projects where they had secured complete creative control. What is more, their respective failures had come at very high costs, the budgets swelling beyond the expectations of the talents involved. Spielberg himself had hit his own wall with his World War II disaster comedy, 1941. A big budget picture to begin with, it ran well behind schedule and way over budget, which was the third time in a row that Spielberg had committed the crime. Only this time, 1941 ended up costing more than his previous films, combined. Worse, it didn't connect with audiences, and studios were wondering whether Spielberg was just another genius in profligate clothing. Was he yet a younger version of Coppola, Bogdanovich, Friedkin or Scorsese? A high-flying movie brat ruined by corporate indulgence. One movie brat who had yet to have a flop was George Lucas. In 1973, he had scored an enormous hit with American Graffiti. But despite that success, no studio would finance his next project, Star Wars. It took Alan Ladd Jr., then the CEO of 20th Century Fox, to overrule his entire board of management and give Lucas the green light. After that picture became the highest grosser of all time, studio executives across Hollywood were kicking themselves for having passed not just on the single film, but the entire franchise as well. So, when Lucas pitched a new project called Raiders of the Lost Ark, you would have thought that every studio would have been knocking at his door. But no, the studios were concerned about his choice of director. Could Steven Spielberg come in on time and on budget? In the end, as is so often the case in Hollywood, fear was the spur, and concerned that another smash hit might slip through their fingers, Paramount Pictures signed up Lucas and Spielberg to not just one picture, or three, but five. Which explains the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Well, almost. Good to his word, Spielberg came in ahead of schedule and marginally under budget. But for the next indie adventure, consider this. 
When Disney purchased Lucasfilm in 2013, they didn't only get the Star Wars Galaxy, they got Indiana Jones as well. And while many people will be wondering what the Mouse House will do with the world's most famous archaeologist, I'm more than curious to see what Spielberg does with the opening shot. Each Indiana Jones adventure has begun the same way, with an image simulating the mountain peak of the Paramount Pictures logo. Will Spielberg do it again, you know, just for symmetry? I doubt whether Disney would tolerate such insolence. So instead, I would not be surprised if our first view were of an enchanted castle. When Raiders of the Lost Ark was released 35 years ago this week, Spielberg and Lucas made no bones about the fact that they were drawing inspiration from the cheap Saturday afternoon serials that had been so popular amongst teenage boys in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. So it was all those films I used to see when I was eight and nine years old, the revivals of all the black and white Republic serials. And suddenly I had a chance to make a, a, a serial in widescreen and in Technicolor. It was very exciting. Happily, Raiders turned out to be one of those rare instances where the imitation was infinitely better than the original. While Spielberg and Lucas had been enamored with those adventures in their youth, when they revisited them as adults, they found them decidedly dull hokey and so lacking in that one element that they were so eager to capture. Excitement. Welcome to Tangita, Commander. Thank you, Mr. Blake. I'm glad to meet you and I'm glad to be here. And this is Lieutenant Pennington. Glad to know you, Lieutenant. Your job will be a lot easier with Don Winslow and Red Pennington on the island. To say nothing of the 620 standing by. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. We've heard of Winslow even in Tangita. Nothing bad, I hope. <laughs> May I welcome the new arrivals? Hello, Merlin. Oh, Commander Winslow, Lieutenant Pennington, this is Mr. Merlin. Glad Commander. to meet you, Mr. Merlin. Mr. Merlin is the manager of the Tangita gold mine. Oh, I see. Commander Winslow is here to investigate the sabotage that's been holding up my work. Oh, that's good news. Be sure to let me know, Commander, if there's anything I can do to help you. Thank you, Mr. Merlin, I will. So, while Don Winslow in the Navy, Spy Smasher and Tailspin Tommy had enthralled a generation nursed on comic books, Spielberg and Lucas knew that their audience had just seen the Millennium Falcon make the jump to light speed. But there was another tone that Spielberg was going for. Shortly after the release of Star Wars, Spielberg and Lucas were on holiday in Hawaii, and Spielberg said he had for a long time wanted to make a James Bond picture. Lucas replied he had a better idea. An archaeologist adventurer who travels the globe looking for relics and treasures from the lost world. It's beautiful, Marcus. I can get it. I got it all figured out. There's no one place you can sell it, Marrakesh. I need two thousand dollars. Listen to the boy. I brought some people to see you. Look, I got these pieces. They're good pieces, Marcus. Look, Indiana. Yes, the museum will buy them as usual. No questions asked. Yes, they are nice. They're worth at least the price of a ticket to Marrakesh. But the people I brought are important to the waiting. What people? The army intelligence. They knew you were coming before I did. Seem to know everything. You couldn't tell me what they want. Well, what do I want to see them for? What am I, in trouble? It may sound odd, but the archaeologist adventurer is actually a literary genre that can be traced back to 1885 with the publication of King Solomon's Mines. Written by H. Rider Haggard, the novel was enormously popular in its day and has not been out of print since. In fact, before Spielberg and Lucas embarked on their production, Haggard's story had been adapted to the screen several times. A silent version from 1919, a black and white one from 1937, and then in 1950, a Technicolor extravaganza starring Stuart Granger and Deborah Kerr. I know souls in the jungle, their little justice and no ethics. Well, in the end, you begin to accept it all. You watch things hunting and being hunted, reproducing, killing and dying. It's all endless and pointless. 
Except in the end, one small pattern emerges from it all. The only certainty. One is born, one lives for a time, and then one dies, that's all. All the rest is Yuyutsava. That adaptation was the one Spielberg and Lucas were most familiar with. But while it is an obvious touchstone, they also drew from a movie starring Charlton Heston. There's a legend that the Inca Empire was destroyed by the gods because the sunburst disappeared. The Indians believe their empire will be restored if they find the sacred sunburst. This one's Big Brother. Is there really such a sunburst somewhere? Well, there isn't. Archaeologists have dug up half of Peru just to look at some old ruins and mummies. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why the secret of the Incas is important here is because of Heston's costume. In the film, Heston played Harry Steele, and Steele wore a fedora hat and a soft leather jacket, just like the combination Indy wore. Another reference for Indy's costume would be For Whom the Bell Tolls, the 1943 adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's masterpiece set during the Spanish Civil War. You've got to understand, Maria. I'm in this war to the finish. I can't have anything serious in my life. A man doing what I'm doing never knows what's going to happen. Whatever happens to you will happen to me. Gary Cooper played Robert Jordan, who not only wore a fedora, but also the same sandy cotton shirt, as well as the same roughed-up leather satchel, strapped over the same right shoulder that Indiana Jones does. Now, a more obvious source would be Fred C. Dobbs, the greedy gold prospector Humphrey Bogart played in John Huston's multi-Oscar winning adaptation of B.A. Travers' novel, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Dobbs had gone to Mexico in search of fortune and encountered a group of very dodgy guys claiming to be the mounted police. Oiga, señor, we are federales, you know, the mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Bogart's screen persona surely informed the psychological construction of Indiana Jones, resolute and determined on bringing back the treasure. But for a more resonant inspiration, we need to leave the cinema and head back to the bookstore, preferably a cheap one, or more accurately, a vintage one, which most likely means not cheap at all. In the 1920s, another English author, Talbot Mundy, wrote an adventure series about a character named Jim Grimm. Jim Grimm is James Schuyler Grimm, an American working for the British Secret Service, a deed that would surely result in him being tried for treason. But no matter, because in Mundy's stories, the 17 Thieves of El Khalil, the Lion of Petra and the Mysteries of Khufu's Tomb, Jim Grimm goes from Egypt through to Persia, across India and into Tibet. Cunning and resourceful, Jim Grimm is a sort of precursor to James Bond. But Jim Grimm also resembles another hero, this time a real-life one. The great British adventurer of the Arabian Desert, T.E. Lawrence. Where are they now? Anywhere within 300 miles of Medina. They are Hashemite Bedouins. They can cross 60 miles of desert in a day. Oh, thanks, Dryden. This is going to be fun. Lawrence, only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. It is recognized that you have a funny sense of fun. It is impossible to overestimate the impact that film had on the young Steven Spielberg. Yes, there is Walt Disney's Dumbo, 
Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth, and Victor Fleming's A Guy Named Joe. But more influential than all of them is David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia. Seeing that movie literally changed Spielberg's life. When the film first came out, the first week it ever played in Phoenix, Arizona, that's when I saw it for the first time. I was in high school. And I couldn't really comprehend the enormity of the experience, so I wasn't really able to digest it in one sitting. I actually walked out of the theater stunned and speechless and didn't quite understand the impact that film had had on me until months later. I'm talking about months later, because I didn't see it two times in the one week. I saw it one time, and it just pulverized me. I went out and bought this Maurice Jarre soundtrack. And for the next couple of months, I played the score over and over and over again. They had a sort of a little production book inside the soundtrack album. I just devoured each picture, wanting to understand how that film was made. It was a miracle, that picture. So, when it comes to the influences, you have Lawrence and Bond and Bogart, Jim Grimm and Harry Steele and Robert Jordan. But the greatest influence of all is a duck. A duck who wore a top hat, affected half-moon spectacles and strutted with a cane. Yes, I'm talking about Donald Duck's uncle, Scrooge McDuck. Goodbye, Scroogey. Write to us. I'll send money home, McMama. Good luck, son. Remember. I know, McPapa. Work smarter, not harder. No. Take these blasted bagpipes, will you? More than anything, Raiders of the Lost Ark has the tone, speed and style of a cartoon. And more than that, it resembles, in the most beautiful way, a comic book. Although Universal Studios produced Tailspin Tommy and Don Winslow in the Navy, they both actually began as comic books. So the most explicit influences are the storylines. There's an episode from the 1954 issue of the Uncle Scrooge comic called The Seven Cities of Sibylla. There, Scrooge and his three nephews are in South America searching for a lost idol. When they find it in the cave and remove it from a plinth, the cave begins to implode. Then a lever is tripped, unleashing a giant boulder that rolls down upon them. In 1959, another adventure was published, this time a 20-page epic called The Prize of Pizarro. There, Scrooge and his nephews are once more in South America, this time trying to locate a treasure of gold. Their escape is thwarted as the walls start spitting arrows, and they are pursued through the jungle by local tribesmen. These Scrooge McDuck stories, widely accepted as the best in the history of Disney's entire gallery, were written and sketched by one man, Carl Barks. But because the characters were the copyright of Walt Disney, Barks was never given credit for what he drew. Yet readers came to recognise and cherish his inimitable style, and by the 1960s his name was known to devotees. Here is Barks accounting for what made his adventures unique. Every man had a little different muscle structure in his hand or something that caused that figure, whether it's Mickey or Donald, to look a little different. I had a, a very fluid, movable duck. But you know, if all Spielberg did was rifle through the dynamic but still images of Barks's comics, we would only have gotten a series of shots and sequences suggesting movement and momentum. But if there is one thing that makes Spielberg one of the cinema's greatest masters, it is his ability to use the camera as an emotional force. So emotional, in fact, that it sometimes feels as if he were waving the camera about like some wizard would a magic wand. 
or more appropriately, like a conductor with a baton in front of an orchestra. Spielberg choreographs his scenes in a way that is uncannily in sync with his most constant collaborator, John Williams. Now, a lot of people say that Spielberg's films would be nothing without Williams' music. But that is to wholly misplace the emphasis and origin of Williams' contribution. And But what John does, and John, I give him my story, he rewrites my story in music. So he writes a musical version of the story I've just told. But he does sit with me and we look at the movies, every single scene we watch together, and we decide where there should be music and where music shouldn't be. So it's where there isn't music is as important as where there is music. Watch Raiders of the Lost Ark with the sand switched off. Better still, do as Steven Soderbergh has done recently and watch it with the colour dialed down. That way, your attention will focus solely on the timing and choreography of the action. You will then notice that Spielberg builds visual crescendos into entire sequences. Camera moving left, villain enters frame right. Action moves forward, camera moves back as Indy enters frame left. All this means that when it comes to Williams composing, he already has visual cadence and movement on which to construct his melodies. The truth is, Spielberg's films are so visual, you can watch them with the sound turned down, and even in the silence, you can practically hear his images painting the score. <laughs> ¶¶